0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Thank you. And the session at Jacobswell for giving me the honor of being able to preach to Jacobswell church this morning. Um, So, if you will turn with me to Esther 5, I guess you have all the same Bible because you have the same page number, but I guess mine's different. I'm on 499 if you were interested. But as we start to look at this, have you ever watched a TV show where it ends in a cliffhanger? It's kind of that's how they get you, right? They get you to come back the next time. You want to know what happens, and then it usually resolves fairly quickly. In this era of Netflix, it's not that big of a deal. The next one just plays, right? It just keeps going. It used to be a big deal. You'd have to wait a week, or if it was a mid-season or a season finale, you'd have to wait weeks or months to find out what happens. But now my Apple TV just plays it for me. But we've been waiting a week now. Since, since the end of Esther 4. And if you remember, it ended in a cliffhanger, as Jonathan preached at the end of there. So there's this law that if you go before the king of Persia, unbidden, you're to die. Unless the king extends his scepter to you, then you get to live. And he just gets to choose. And Esther hasn't been invited before the king in at least 30 days. But at the urging of her uncle Mordecai, Esther has resigned herself to go before the king. She says, "If I perish, I perish." She's going to go before the king for the sake of her people to stand on their behalf. Right after an issue has been, has been uh, an edict has been issued for the destruction of the Jews, and so we're left right there with this cliffhanger that says, "If I perish, I perish." And she's resigned herself to that. And then we have the whole city fasting, or all the Jews in the city, fasting for three days for her. So will she perish? Let's find out as we read together. We're only gonna do verses one and two, and then we'll read the rest as we continue on. So this is Esther 5, one and two. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have given us your word. We ask that you would help us this morning as we look at Esther 5. That your spirit would illuminate to our hearts and our minds. That we would know and love you more deeply. That we would be more conformed to the image of Christ at the end of this. And that we would love our neighbors better. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just as a recap, I'm stepping into Jacob's well we're stepping in to the book of Esther. And so this is a true story that takes place in Susa, the capital of Persia, which is in modern day Iran. And this is under the reign of King Xerxes. So if you've ever seen the movie 300, he's the big guy with all the earrings, cheek rings, all that. And Esther is a narrative. It's narrative form. And so we actually want to cooperate with the text in that. So we're going to read it differently than we would read some of Paul's letters, than we would read the Psalms, than we would read the prophets. It's going to look a little bit different. And the tricky thing about jumping into a book, especially just like Esther, is that Esther, the main meaning of the book is actually found in the whole. If you lose sight of the whole book, you're going to miss the meaning of the individual chapter. It's like TV shows they call serials, which I like these. It's one overarching story for the whole season. So each episode matters, but it matters most in the way that it contributes to the whole plot. This is like 24, Jack Ryan. Like if you miss an episode and watch it, you're confused. You don't know what's going on. This is different than, say, Genesis or 1 Kings, where the whole does matter. There are overarching themes, but there are more independent sections within that. These are more like your episodic episodes. This is like CSI or um, Law and Order. You can jump in. There are things you might miss. But you can watch an episode, miss three, watch another one, and you kind of know what's going on. So we need to keep this whole story of Esther in mind as we're doing this in order to actually make sense of the parts. And so before we can look at the characters and identify with them and learn and apply principles from what they're doing, first we need to recognize that God is the hero of the book of Esther. Even though he isn't mentioned once, that God, through what we call providence... His preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. The way that he's orchestrating all of history and all the details of our lives. That through that, he keeps his covenant promises to his people. So in the big picture, we're not Esther. We're not Mordecai. We're more like the average Jew just sitting in one of the 127 provinces that just had an edict handed down for our destruction. And we have to ask, how is God going to save us? How is God going to keep his covenant promises to us? How's he gonna do that? So once we get that big picture We see that it's ultimately a story of God's faithfulness to his people, faithfulness to his covenant. Then we can get into the details. We can get down into the nitty-gritty of the text and see how God brings about the fulfillment of those promises. And what we see and what we should seek to imitate from the characters in it or the things that we should avoid. Then we can look at those things. And as we consider this, one of the things that we have to consider and we see it in Esther's, in Esther's life, and we see it in our own lives too, is that God's sovereignty and his providence don't remove our agency and they don't violate our wills. We're not puppets on a string. And yet God truly is in control. So this is really important, that God's activity and our activity are not a zero-sum game. They don't have to equal out. It's not like it's a pie and God takes one piece and we take another. If God's working, we're not, or vice versa. It's not like that. God is always at work for the good of his people and for his own glory. And we're always at work too. Like we know this intuitively. We're always doing things. We're always making decisions. The question for us is, Are we being faithful and obedient? So, with that in mind, now we'll come to our text and ask, how is God going to providentially keep his promises to his people? So, let's look at verse one. So, after three days of fasting, and it doesn't explicitly say it, but if you go back in the Old Testament, fasting is always coupled with prayer, and it has a purpose, right? We're actually pursuing and seeking God in this. So after three days, Esther puts on her royal robes and stands in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Notice the repetition of the word king there. Just in one verse, we see it three times. That's in English. In Hebrew, the root for that is actually six times in that one verse. And in our chapter of uh, 14 verses that roots there 32 times. This chapter is about kingdoms. This is one of the questions throughout Esther is, where is she on this? She's kind of with Persia? Is she with God's people? The question is, to what kingdom do you truly belong? And that's one that's shoved in our face this morning. And it's one that we see Esther answer here. And it's one that we're each going to have to answer ourselves as well. So what does Esther do? She goes before the king. It's illegal. She could just be killed. It just depends on what kind of mood Xerxes is in. And this isn't, this isn't rhetoric for it. There are ancient paintings that have Xerxes sitting there, scepter in one hand, Executioner hanging out right here with an axe, just like ready to go. This really is life or death, and you can imagine. Now we put ourselves in Esther's shoes to empathize with her, standing there, waiting, resigned to death. You can imagine the shallow breathing, the pulse just racing. You can feel your heartbeat in your fingertips. What's going to happen? We come to verse 2. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So you can imagine this relief, this exhale. (sighs) But it's not over. She has to keep her cool. She's not about to die right now, but this hasn't actually changed the edict. She's still under the condemnation of death. And she has to approach the king with this impossible request. That was only step one. But, and we see Esther make this stand here. She gives her allegiance to the kingdom of God. She transgresses the law of Persia to stand with the people of God. And we see this shift in Esther. So if you have Disney Plus, you've probably seen it, came out this summer, the musical Hamilton. Up to this point, Esther has been Aaron Burr. It says, talk less, smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. This has been Esther. So far in the book, she goes the path of least resistance. She's participated in the kingdom of Persia through the rituals, through the elections, through the eating of the food at the banquets. But we have Hamilton Ask Burr says, If you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? But unlike Burr, we see this change in Esther here. She stands for the kingdom of God and for the people. Of God. And now the language shifts as well. So from chapter 5 on, she's referred to as Queen Esther 13 times, where she's only been Queen Esther once before. And if you remember those first three chapters of Esther, King Xerxes' Hebrew name, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, I don't know how you say it. I'm told that it's on VeggieTales, but I haven't seen that either. But his name is mentioned 18 times in those first three chapters. And with all the mentions of king in this chapter, I don't have to read it one time. For all his worldly power, he's relegated in this chapter to being a nameless king. While Esther's elevated to this royal status as she identifies with the people of God. She actually steps in and we actually see her for who she truly is. So the first thing we see God use in this passage to bring about his covenant promises is Esther's courage, even at the very risk of her own life. And as we see God working this way through the book of Esther and through Esther herself, knowing that she was put there for such a time as this, as Jonathan talked about last week, we know this is true of us as well, as he mentioned. We're not in the same high position. We're not given the task of literally saving God's people from annihilation, from genocide. Praise God for that. We don't have to deal with that right now. But God, through his providence, has brought each of us to where we are. That's what Paul teaches in Acts 17, he says that God has determined the time and place where each of us will live. Where you are is no accident. God does not make mistakes. He has raised each of us up and brought us to where we are for a purpose, for his mission in the world. And what Paul says, he says that he's done this for us because God is not so that you might reach out and find God, though he is not far from each and every one of you. And so the first question we have to ask is, do we have the courage to take that step to actually reach out for God? To identify with Christ and his kingdom and not our culture. There is a threat. For us in America, it's not physical death. Though for Christians across the globe, it is. We should consider that probably more often than we do. But even for us, it will mean death nonetheless. It might be social death. You might get canceled. You might have very good friends and very close family members reject you, spurn you, or even actively go against you for standing for the truth and with the people of God. It might be financial. You might lose your job. You might lose your business. You might get sued. These are realities for us. If it doesn't mean one of those, it still will mean death. It means dying to the desires of this world. It means dying to ourselves. You will risk it all to identify with Christ and his kingdom. Jesus told us as much. He says, if anyone will come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. And we have an example of this. in Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I die every day. There's good news that it's worth it. That the kingdom of God has a good, a loving, a merciful, and a just king. When we couldn't enter his presence because of sin, he made a way that he sent his own son to take our sin upon himself, to die in our place, to rise again, and to give us his own righteousness. By grace, through faith, not because of anything that we've done. Because of what Christ has done. And those who trust in Christ don't need to fear entering into the throne room of God. We're told to come boldly. Where Esther hasn't been invited in at least 30 days... Every week, this morning, we have it. We have a call to worship, a call to come into my presence, worship me. I long to be with you. I want to commune with you. I want to feed you. I want to take care of you. In this kingdom, we're not subject to the fickle, ever changing moods of the king. We're not left guessing whether or not we can approach. Whether or not we'll be accepted, whether or not the scepter will be extended, we can come to him confidently, knowing that we are His beloved because of what Christ has done, because we're covered by His blood. And for his sake, he will never reject us. This is good news. And this kingdom, it's eternal. It's not like the kingdom of Persia that hasn't existed for over 2,000 years. This one's not passing away. This one's values aren't changing year after year or week after week, it seems like, these days. But even here now, if we are killed, so be it. Jesus says in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And he doesn't just say that. He actually lived it. Christ died for us. But he conquered death and he rose again. If you trust in Christ, you share in that resurrection. And though it may be difficult now that we experience these things, one day all of it will be made right. And because we're safe in our relationship with the true king, because we know that we have eternal life, that we have nothing to fear, we can actually live confidently, that we can live boldly, that we can live courageously today, here. that when we start talking to our friends who don't know Christ and we, we feel our heart starting to race, that we know we should be sharing the gospel, the Spirit's working there, we're nervous, we're afraid they won't want to talk about it, that they'll reject us, that we'll be the weird friend that they write off and don't call back, that we can boldly step in, that we can be courageous and speak up with the truth. When we hear people gossiping and tearing others down, that we can step in and stand up for them. That when we see injustice in the world, that we can step into that. That we can do all of this, not of our own accord, but by the power of the Spirit that's working in us and knowing the hope we have of eternal life under a godly. God, king, who loves us. So what does God use in his providence to keep covenant promises? He uses our courage. What else does he use? Let's continue on with verses 3 to 8. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So the king knows the law. He knows that Esther just risked her life to come before him. He knows that she must need or want something very desperately to do that. And he says he'll grant her her request, even to half of his kingdom. I don't think we're supposed to take that literally. I think that's something that they would say that means anything within reason. You see it with um, Herod and John the baptizer's death as well. So what do we expect now? We just talked about her courage. So now she should say, I need you to save my people. But that doesn't happen, right? So why not? Because it probably wouldn't have happened if she came at it that way. The king had just allowed for this decree to be sent out in his name. He gave Haman the stamp. It got sent out. And his decrees are irrevocable. They can't be changed. Even when we see the resolution later, This decree doesn't go away. A new one is issued to kind of counterbalance it. Once it has been decreed, it's done. It can't be changed. So her approaching and just coming to that right then is not something that's reasonable to be done. So what does she do? She asks the king and Haman to come to a feast. Now in that culture, feasts like this were where the business was done. It's like the golf course. Or on the office, Michael Scott says, Chili's is the new golf course. Right? It's, where, it's where the deals are done. It's where business happens. It's clear the king is aware of this because at the feast, so they have the feast and they have the banquet of wine, and that's where this happens. He asks her what her request is again. He wouldn't ask if the feast was the request. And he says again, I'll do it for you, even to half of his kingdom. He expressed his intent to do it twice now. Now, look at what Esther does in verse 7. It doesn't come across really well in our ESV translations. The ESV has a colon. So, what it makes it sound like is that verse 8 is the request. Um, but really, she actually starts a sentence in verse 7 and just stops. It's like an ellipsis. And then she pivots. So you can imagine the king's intrigue. Like she's already risked her life to come before him. His interest is piqued. Now he's come to this feast. He asks again. So surely she's going to tell him. She doesn't. So you can imagine him like leaning in as she starts to say it. And then she like stops. She's like set the hook. Now he wants to know so badly. And was so close to finally hearing it. And you can tell what she's doing is intentional because the next thing Esther says locks him into kind of granting it even more than he was before. She repeats what was said, but kind of changes it. She says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king, now it's not come to the feast, but now it's if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, then come again with Haman and I will do as the king said. Now this whole thing's turned to where it's I'm doing what you're wanting by giving you my request so that you can do it. And he can't refuse her now. And he knows that, and he chooses to do it anyway. He has to do it or he'd lose face. And that's really all you have in the kingdom of this world. We already saw what happens when he loses it in chapter 1 when he tells Vashti to come and she doesn't. Here we have Esther appearing unbidden, and he's locked himself into doing what she requests. So how is God providentially working to keep his covenant promises? He uses Esther's courage, and he also uses her cunning. If cunning has a negative connotation for you, you can use wisdom, though the alliteration doesn't work, so I'm sticking with it. But when the potential cost is Esther's own life, she shows courage in trusting herself to the Lord. She stands there at risk of death. When she has to navigate the realities of the world in which she lives to pursue her mission that is larger than herself, she does so with cunning. She works within the system. And the word is shrewd. We see that in Matthew 11, as Jesus sends out the apostles, he says that they're sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. There's no bigger wolf than Haman, who's sitting right next to her, who's trying to destroy her whole people. He says, so they're to be wise as serpents, or NIV says, shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. She's not manipulating him. He knows what's going on, and he's okay with it, and he's doing it anyway. She's being cunning. Some question for us is, where do we need to be cunning? Where do we need to be perhaps more winsome and convincing and laying groundwork? Esther's about to have to be courageous again in a couple chapters. She has to get the point there. But here she's laid all of this groundwork. She's laid this smooth foundation to be heard. She doesn't come with a hammer and a nail. She drills a pilot hole. She starts the screw. Then she pulls the trigger and drives it home. The truth is we have to have both. We have to have both courage and cunning. But as God's people, as individuals, we often lean more one way or the other. Some of us have this tendency to courage and boldness, but a little bit less nuance, less flexibility, oftentimes less patience. We'll tell you the truth, which is important. We'll proclaim the gospel. We'll make it very clear where we stand, that we stand with God and the people of God. But sometimes we do it in ways that make us ineffective in our mission in the world. And others of us tend the other way. We think that we're very cunning, that we're navigating our culture, that we're navigating our relationships for kingdom purposes. But if we're honest, we oftentimes don't, look, don't end up looking any different than the world around us. And when the time comes that calls for courage, we're found failing. And like those who are courageous without cunning, we're ineffective in our mission as well. We actually need both. So if you're the more courageous type, where might more cunning be required? How can you navigate relationships in ways that are a little bit more winsome that you can lay a foundation to set yourself up to actually be heard and received well? Not saying God doesn't have to open their hearts. He does, but we can do work. He works through us as we've been talking about this whole time to kind of do that some. And if you're the more cunning type, where do you need to be more courageous and make a stand for what you truly believe in? Where you could say that I do, in fact, belong to Christ and his kingdom. It is a vastly different kingdom than the kingdom of this world. We need both. And as I mentioned before, this all starts like Esther before she does this, three days of fasting and prayer. We need to to pursue the Lord in this, on when what is appropriate. We need to be wise and cunning, and we need to be courageous as we follow God and his Spirit's leading. Because in his providence, God uses both our courage and our cunning to keep his promises. So what do we expect next? Now it's banquet two, right? We just get to the point. Wrong again. Let's read verses 9 to 14. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. So we've seen how Esther functions in the kingdom of God, risking her own life for the sake of others. And now we get to see the flip side. We get to see what the kingdom of the world looks like and how it functions. So our focus shifts now to Haman. So he's the number two in Persia. He's been in our passage since verse five, but he hasn't done or said anything other than come when he's called. He's the mastermind mind of the Jewish genocide, and he hates Mordecai. And he hates the people of God and is utterly opposed to them. So he leaves the feast joyful. It's great. But when he sees Mordecai, Mordecai doesn't stand or tremble in fear. Before he didn't bow, now he won't stand or tremble. You've got to imagine Mordecai's there. The edict was just issued that he'd be killed a little under a year from now. And Mordecai doesn't tremble for him. And Haman is livid. But he hides it till he gets home. Then he gathers his, his wife and his friends. He brings them in. And he brags about his accomplishment, accomplishments. Everything he has, all the promotions he's gotten. You see this shift in what he's saying in verse, th- verse 13. He says, yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He's the second most powerful person in the largest empire of its time. And one guy that won't honor him, one guy that has no position of authority, makes him feel like none of it matters. It's gone just like that. Isn't that what happens to us when our hearts' idols are threatened too? When you belong to the kingdom of this world, you can only find your meaning, your value, your worth, your esteem, in things that are fleeting, in things that you cannot control, in things that actually control you. Where one guy who, who doesn't affect your reality at all can consume you. If you're living in this kingdom, turn from your sin trust in Christ and he will deliver you from the kingdom of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of light. There your meaning and value will never change, though we don't always experience it as it is. But you will be a beloved son or daughter of the king of the universe who made all, who loves us who gave his life in our place for us, who will not leave us or forsake us. And who will set all things right. Confess your sin. Turn to him and he will save you. Until he returns, we still feel this tension, don't we? We don't fully experience it, though we Though it's objectively true, and we're members of God's kingdom, we feel this pull just back and forth. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world, it's what we call indwelling sin. Check out what Paul says in Romans 7 for that. That though we belong to Christ's kingdom, we oftentimes don't live as if we do. We end up, even Christians end up looking like Haman where we still love other things more than God. We act like him. Where all the good things God has given us are like nothing if we don't get the one thing that we want. But by the power of God's spirit at work in us, we can do so less and less as he sanctifies us and renews the image of God in us. What are those things for you? What are those things that get under your skin, that frustrate you, that make it seem like all the good things God's given us don't matter? You might put up a good front. Haman does. He hides it till he gets home. It does come out. We all have them there. What are those things for you? Confess them to God and confess them to one another. We need the church as well. What Haman does wouldn't be a terrible thing if we were actually this vulnerable and this honest that we could confess our sins and say, I have all of this, God's blessed me with all of this, and yet this one thing is destroying me. Then we could be friends in the church like we're supposed to that don't say, go build a gallows and kill the problem, but say, you need Christ. You're looking to the wrong thing. That's what we should be for each other. We all need the truth of the gospel to root these things out in us. That's why we have confession of sin every single week just as well. What are those things in your life? And when you hear other people share them with you, how can you share the gospel with them in it? And just as our episode began with a cliffhanger, it ends with another. Haman's wife and friends tell him to build this 75-foot wooden pole to have his problem impaled upon it Mordecai, not his sin, is the problem. What's interesting here is just like the king with Esther, um, he actually follows his wife's advice here, where in chapter one, he sends out the edict that the husbands should be the masters of the household. Both of them are just being run by the wives right now. And he has this pole built. And we ended last week wondering what would happen with Esther. We now end this week wondering what will happen to Mordecai. So we've seen that God uses Esther's courage and her cunning, but we leave with this question of how will God use Haman's cowardice to accomplish his purposes and keep his promises? Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are always at work. We thank you that even when we don't see you, you are working. For our good and for your glory. As you are in Esther where your name isn't even mentioned. God, we ask that you would help us. That by your spirit you would empower us. That you would give us courage when we need courage. That you would give us cunning when we need cunning. And that your spirit would guide us to know the difference. God, we praise you. And we thank you that you keep your covenant promises.